Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Thought Grenades with Robert Thompson and Mike Neese on Blog Talk Radio. Robert is the author of The Offsite, Leadership Challenge Fable, and the founder of LeaderInsideOut.com. And welcome once again to Thought Grenades with Robert Thompson and co-host Mike Neese. This is Monday, April 20, 2015. It's 420. Interesting uh, date. This is Robert Thompson coming to you live from the beautiful San Francisco Bay as we do each and every Monday at 10 a.m. Pacific time. And, of course, joining me from the shores of Lake Michigan, my good friend and co-host, Mike Neese. Mike, say hello to our friends and neighbors. Well, hello, everyone. And we've got a great show once again today. Susan Fowler, she's the author of Why Motivating People Doesn't Work. She joins us to tell us about the new science of leading, energizing, and engaging. And the forward best-selling author Ken Blanchard shares that Fowler's new book is a great reminder that leadership is not something you do to others, it is something you do with them. That's uh, well stated, well stated. Folks, if you have a question or a thought to share, please call in at 347-989-0965. That number again, 347-989-0965. And, of course, never miss a session by subscribing to Thought Grenades on iTunes. That way Mike and I are right there in your mobile device. If you're looking for something practical, simple, and very effective, stay right here. Susan, it's good to have you on. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. Thank you. I'm I'm thrilled, and I just love the idea of you and Mike being in people's mobile devices. <laughs> well, I had a, yeah. a picture of that we, I really liked. Well, yeah, well, that's a good picture. We get under people's skin, too, so it's, <laughs> um, yeah, it's one of those things. Most, we're, we're, we're quite... We're quite motivated today, Susan, but but I'm just I'm feeling a little lethargic. So a- answer the first question. I mean, we don't even have to read your book. Just tell us why motivating people don't work. Doesn't work. It doesn't well, work. And, 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 and you know motivated. what? Well, you know what, Robert, is that you you didn't finish the rest of the title. I said why people why motivating people doesn't oh, work, see. but there is the other part, and what does? <laughs> so, oh, oh, oh. Yeah. I'll get to that. I'm a procrastinator. I'll get to that. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Well, first of all, when you said we're really motivated to be here, um, maybe then you were kind of teasing about, you know, a little lethargic. The thing I think that's really important for people to know is that you're always motivated. You're always motivated. The question is Mm -hmm. why. And so people are motivated differently. And so if you are motivated to be somewhere else other than here, or let's say that somebody is in San Francisco listening to you and they're stuck in traffic or they're, um, you know, uh, frustrated by something, they're listening to you differently than someone who's sitting there with their cup of tea and saying, well, wow, this is the 30 minutes a day that I really, you know, plug in and and do something important for myself, my career, or, or whatever. So people are always motivated, but the leader's role is to truly understand why people are motivated. So you could have two salespeople, for example, and in a particular quarter, they're both really, you know, hitting a home run in terms of their numbers, and they're also doing it differently. They're motivated differently. So you have one salesperson who's motivated by winning that, you know, trip to the Bahamas and, and, you know, getting their numbers and being number one so they can get that trip. And you have the other guy who is selling like crazy because he loves problem solving and he loves serving his clients. And 
selling it or selling is in his blood and he just absolutely loves it. So the quality of a person's motivation is what leaders really need to start to pay attention to. Not not motivation, but the quality of a person's motivation. Uh-huh. Susan, let me let me let me lob one at you here. Okay, I'll do it. If if I'm the boss and they're both hitting their numbers, why should I care what type of motivation they're using? That's a good lob. That's a good lob. And and the reason is because one type of motivation or not one type, but there's there's actually six motivational outlooks as as okay. science has has um identified them. Uh six motivational outlooks and Three of those motivational outlooks are what are called suboptimal and three are optimal. And there are distinct and compelling and, and irrefutable evidence to the, the implications for those different types of motivation. So the person that is externally motivated is having one of their um, psychological needs, their need for autonomy, is being eroded because their motivation is external to themselves. They have no control over yes. it. Um, yes. And so it's not sustainable. What if that... You know, what if, and here's what happens to sales all the time, a couple things. One is, for example, the guy that wants the trip to the Bahamas, um, all of a sudden he realizes he's number two. Some guy has had this huge big sale, and there's no way that he's ever going to surpass him. So what does he do? He just, he backs up. He puts the, he puts the brakes on. Why am I going to kill myself to sell if there's no way I'm going to ever get that trip to the Bahamas? That other guy is going to win. Um, uh, and then the other, but the, the person who is selling because of, a value they have around problem solving or customer service or they just love their products or their sellings in their blood, the byproduct might be they get to go on the sales trip, but mm-hmm. that's a byproduct. It's not the reason they're doing it. And the research is so clear that not only is the quality of the energy different, it's more creative, people are more innovative, it's more sustainable, and it has extraordinary health implications uh, and well-being. So um, people cannot have a posit- or sustain a positive sense of well-being when they're operating on a suboptimal motivational outlook. Very good. So take, take us uh, quickly, um, and not too quickly, but quick enough to <laughs> get it all in our half hour. Take us through your, your spectrums of motivation. Uh, interesting. Yeah, it's, I have to tell you, it's, it's so, <laughs> it just opens up a whole new world when you realize anytime you're doing something, you could ask yourself, why am I doing it? And it might be um, that you are actually doing it, but you have a disinterested motivational outlook. And a disinterested motivational outlook means that you're going along with it, but you don't find any value in it. Or maybe you're not even going along with it. You know, you're talking about being a procrastinator. Maybe you're procrastinating because you're disinterested. And the reason you're disinterested could also be because you're so overwhelmed. There's so many things going on. You don't even know which way to go, you know, or what to do first. And so you have a disinterested motivational outlook. Um, or you could have the next motivational outlook, which is also suboptimal, is what's called external. And an external motivational outlook is when you're doing something for the external reward um, that could be either tangible or intangible. It could be, you know, for, because you're doing it for the money or the prize or the trophy or whatever, or you're doing it for intangible reasons like power, status, um, all of things that you don't control and that once you got them, you, it's hard to sustain the motivation in any way, shape, or form. And it also, as I said earlier, it influences the quality of the energy that you bring to whatever you're doing. And then the third suboptimal motivational outlook is called imposed. And imposed is when you're doing something because you feel like you have to, which I think is really funny. Um, it's like uh, you have a meeting that you 
said yes to the meeting maker, you might have even set up the meeting. And then you look at your calendar and you go, oh, I have to go to that meeting today. And it's like you go into an imposed motivational outlook. Um, uh, maybe you're afraid of not going. Um, uh, you maybe feel guilt or shame. Um, you, you're trying to live up to yours or somebody else's expectations. Uh, you, you're feeling uh, pressure or stress. So those are okay. suboptimal. And um, I think we can probably all relate to those. And then very quickly, the other three motivational outlooks, which are optimal, um, is the aligned motivational outlook when you can take a look at whatever it is you're doing and find value, that there's a developed value you have that you can link to what you're doing, um, or integrated where it's like a self-identifying activity, like somebody I know that started out running. They hated running in the beginning, but they, you know, so they were kind of, uh, like, I'm going to do this, I don't really want to. And then they, they found something purposeful in it. And now today when you ask, um, you know, who are you? They go, I'm a runner. You know, uh, it's, it's what we call integrated. They didn't love it in the beginning, but they came to love it because they had a sense of purpose in it. And then there's the inherent motivational outlook, and that would be the person that runs because they love it. You know, they don't even know why they love it. They just love it. And so for me, a good example of the inherent motivational outlook would be playing Candy Crush. <laughs> I don't want to invent that, but I decided to throw that in there because a few people can relate. <laughs> Candy Crush. Okay. I know. Is, so that, is awesome. that thing on that? Is, is that on that internet thing? <laughs> it's on that internet thing. But you know what's really interesting? Thing. And I don't know about you, but I mean, I actually do play Candy Crush. I'm, I'm not joking. And it's inherent in a lot of what we <laughs> see around games and gamification is because games tap into a lot of our psychological needs, not all of them, but a couple of them. Sure. But what happens sure. is they become addictive and obsessive, and it actually takes more self-regulation to quit doing something you really enjoy to do something that has value or purpose. And that's part of what I try to teach people when we, uh, we believe that motivation is a skill and that you can actually learn to shift your motivational outlook and sustain it over time. And that's that's part of that process. Mm-hmm. Very good, Susan. I'm, 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 as I'm listening to the to the to the six there, and having read about it in your book, the question I think that's important here is how do we help people move from suboptimal to optimal? You know, I, mm. I, I think in, with the people I work with, well, you, you know, they might be them, in a manufacturing plant making twelve bucks an hour. You know, they're they're there because they got a mortgage to pay. Uh, you know, they they basically feel like they're sentenced to 30 years in the plant. So how do we move them from that imposed up into the optimal level? Well, the first thing we need to do is let go of that whole idea that you can motivate anyone. Because as we said, people right. are already motivated. So the right. question you ask is a really good one because the real role is how do you help a person shift? Okay, because they're already motivated. Right. So the first step is to identify, to help, to understand and help the person understand why is it you're doing what you're doing now? Is it because you've got to pay your mortgage and you feel a lot of pressure and, uh, you know, if you, if you had a choice, you wouldn't work another day in your life? And, by the way, most people who don't have jobs are miserable. So this whole idea that I wish I didn't have to work, you know, even people who are very, very wealthy, it's interesting. If we would just look at those, you know, I, I just pulled out an article from People Magazine about, you know, the poor, uh, you know, the curse of the Getty family, the richest family in the world. Right. And they're committing suicide and they have, you know, drug problems and all that. 
so the idea that if you had all the money in the world and you didn't have to work another day in your life, obviously, is not what what is going to give people a sense of well-being and you know whatever else they need. So, as a leader, um, is to is for you to understand that anybody. Let's let's. I think the whole idea that people can't, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs has done us a disservice because we think if people don't have some of those basic needs met, they can't experience what we call optimal motivation or self-actualization. And that's just patently not true. Maslow didn't even believe in his own hierarchy. It's never been empirically proven. He threw it out there to start a discussion, and it became the most popular motivational theory in the world. And, and, And so what it's done is it's kept us from recognizing and then using money and status as an excuse for not helping people have a higher quality experience, especially at work. So, so if we can say to, you know, if we can help people understand, here's why you're motivated to do what you're, what you're doing now. And here are the options or how do we help you generate options for doing what you do for a different reason? And so we have a bold statement, and that statement is that motivation is a skill. And another bold statement, that leaders can't motivate anyone, but what they can do is create an optimally motivating environment and learn best practices that will absolutely help people shift or stay in a motivational outlook um, and sustain it. So, and you have, you have those best practices in your book, right? Exactly. So I think that's what makes this book different than anything that people will have read um, about the new science of motivation. So not only do we describe the wonderful science by Edward D.C. and Richard Ryan um, that was reported on by Dan Pink in his book. So Dan did a great job of reporting a lot of that science that's been going on since the 1960s. But Edward D.C. and Richard Ryan and the group of academicians and researchers in the self-determination theory world have identified these three psychological needs that are, and I'm going to use the academic terms because there's a reason they use these terms, um, autonomy, relatedness, and competence, and that when those three psychological needs are supported and satisfied in the workplace, people experience optimal motivation. When those three psychological needs are eroded or thwarted or undermined in the workplace, people experience suboptimal motivational outlook. And most of the traditional practices, most of our traditional leadership practices tend to undermine rather than support psychological needs. I was just working with a company, for example, that needed to have a really big fourth quarter. So, man, they just put all the pressure on all the salespeople. You've got you to gotta make these numbers by fourth quarter. You know, we've got, as a company, we, if we're going to be healthy, we have to do this. And they put all this pressure on them, gave them all these incentives. And what do you think happened first quarter of, of 2015? They had... Oh, total. I mean, so far below what any projections or expectations were that it totally undermined what had happened the, you know, in 2014. You cannot use pressure and tension and have it work in any kind of sustainable way. And even if you did, people would start to, and this is why we have such high um, disability claims, and even safety, you think about safety regulations. Why don't people follow safety regulations? And, and so what happens is you get people who are making poor decisions based on pressure and tension, and then we wonder why they can't sustain any kind of productivity or um, you know, uh, out- outcomes that we are really looking for. So traditional methods yeah. don't work. 
And so we've identified what are the new best practices that support the science, you know, that will really help you to create that optimally motivating environment. And that's what the book is about. We want to hear some of those best practices, but I also want to check in on on gender and age. Mm. Great question. any, Any differences there? Uh, here's here's what's exciting, I think, about this science, is that our basic human needs for autonomy, relatedness, and competence are human needs. They're not mm-hmm. dependent on gender or generation or uh, culture or class or race or any of those things. And so this is something that you can see in any baby. Uh, a baby grabs a spoon to feed themselves because they have an inherent need for autonomy. They want to feed themselves. They want, even though they don't have the competence to do it, they want the autonomy to do it. Uh, we can see relatedness in a two-year-old that, you know, when they're talking to you and you're not looking at them, they will g- literally grab your face and turn your face so that you're looking at them because they need that sense of relatedness, that that sense of connection. And then we see that need of competence. You know, we, we watch a child learning to walk. We expect that they're going to fall, but do we ever ask, why do they bother to get up? And the reason they bother to get up is because learning and growing. Why do they always ask why? Why, why, why? Because we have an innate curiosity and a need to grow and learn and master our environment and be able to cope with everyday challenges. So, so it get, those three psychological needs get played out differently in every generation, but we all have them. So if you think about baby boomers, which I know I am, I, I'm not going to speak for you all, uh, and, and I think, Mike, you told me that you're young, you look younger than Robert? That's correct, yes. He only looks younger than me in his own mirror. <laughs> I, think, I think I have that same thing. Yeah. Um, but uh, baby boomers, for example, a lot of our relatedness in the workplace came from the fact that we would go to work for an organization and be there for 20 or 30 years, and mm-hmm. our workplace became our community, and there was a sense of loyalty, and, um, and, and then we had a sense of purpose and contribution uh, from that, that longevity. And, of course, today we know that these younger generations, they're not going to have five jobs. They may have five careers in their lifetime. Correct. And so their, their need for relatedness is coming outside the workplace because organizations have not figured out how to recreate the need or how to uh, support the need for relatedness in that kind of environment. And then they wonder why their young people are constantly on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, and it's because they have a need for relatedness, but that's not getting met in their workplace. So they have the need, and we as, or, as leaders need to help those young people have those relatedness needs met within their work, then they're probably going to be less needy to, to get it met outside of work because there's no such thing as uh, psychological need compensation. You can't not have it met in your primary way you spend your life, which is through your work, and expect those needs are going to be met outside of work. Okay. So, um, I had a great question flying by just seconds ago. Mike, can you help me out here? I'm, I'm having well, sure. No, I, I, I'd like to follow up on something Susan just said. I mean, I certainly buy the uh, buy the argument um, that. Organizations have to help that generation with their relatedness, but how do they do that? I mean, yeah. So what, what are the best practices, practices are out there? 
Yeah, and I was I, I kind of think I waylaid us by not going there because you asked, you know, we'd like to hear about some of those best practices. You know, this is here's just a really, really simple – I'm going to give you a couple simple ones. But sure. um, one simple one, for example, is that because we have a pressure around metrics and, you know, the numbers and making sure the numbers, what leaders have a tendency to do is if they check in with their people, they're checking in to see, okay, where are you on your numbers, how many calls did exactly. you make today, or how many reports have you generated, or, you know, so we're, we're checking in in terms of what people have done and what they've accomplished. And yet we know that one of the psychological needs is for competence. So what if at the end of every day you actually asked, what did you learn today? How did you grow today that actually will help you be better tomorrow? Or what have you learned that if you were to share it might help someone else do their job better? And if we just help people recognize that, wow, today I tried something different and as a result I had a better experience, that is starting to satisfy that need for growth and learning for confidence. So it's just an easy little switch, but it's not natural because of our focus on results. And so if leaders could start, and one of the chapters I think that people really love in my book is chapter six, which is the beliefs that really need to change in order for leaders to practice new best practices. So what I identify are, are beliefs like, oh, this isn't personal, it's just business. Well, you've got to turn that around because the primary way that people come to conclusions about and ultimately their behavior in the workplace is not cognitively, it's not through what they're thinking, it's through what they feel. And yet feelings is the F word in most organizations. We don't deal with people's feelings. We try to pretend they don't exist or that they shouldn't be important, and yet they are absolutely essential. And so if, if leaders would flip that belief, if it's business, it's personal, and start to develop some competencies around how do you deal with emotion, including your own, oh, my God. I mean, that is just, that is just huge, huge. And that is also going to go a long way in terms of relatedness. Uh, and, and, and being able to really connect with people at a level that's meaningful to them. That makes so much sense. What gets in the way? Why, why don't people do it? I think there's a lot of reasons. One reason is because of the beliefs that were established, and a lot of them started back in the 19, late 1930s and in the 1940s, when somehow humans, uh, uh, researchers who were studying human behavior decided to study animals. Um, so you look at B.F. Skinner training a pigeon to do a 360-degree turn by conditioning it with a pellet and a noise and a light, and then they making the connection that, wow, if we can get a pigeon to do anything we want it to do by simply rewarding it with a pellet, we can get people to do the same thing we want. We can get them to do anything we want to if we just give them something. And so there's a belief system that was created and some erroneous interpretations of research um, around like achievement motivation because we hadn't identified or understood the role that psychological needs played in our lives. So probably I think that in psychology, the, mo the greatest breakthrough in the last 50 years has been this concept of psychological needs. And that, and not, so here's the thing, you guys, I think people are all longing for something. I think I don't know if you ever get that, but there's just this sense of longing. You're not sure what you're longing for. And in the workplace, we're, we'll, we'll be longing. We ache for something. 
We don't know what it is. We didn't know how to name it. So we named it money or we named it benefits or we named it a bunch of other stuff, power and status, mm-hmm. the corner office, um, acceptance, prestige. But now that we understand that what we're really longing for and what we ache for is our autonomy, our relatedness and our competence, if we can teach people what that means and what that looks like and how to get it, then it's not that people don't want money, but you know why they want the money now? They want the money as a matter of distributive justice. And justice is a form of relatedness. So when we look at what Dan Price did at Gravity Payments by lowering his million-dollar salary and upping the salaries of everybody else in his organization, and the news media made it all about, wow, he's paying his people more money, and now everybody's happy, and he's getting all these uh, resumes in because people want to work there. It wasn't about the money. It was about the autonomy that people now have because they feel like they've got some discretionary income. But you know what the main thing was? The sense of relatedness, a sense of purpose and connection that came because of a man who was sensitive enough to acknowledge other people's needs before his own. And that's what made people excited. That's what people gravitated towards. But they don't know how to name it. So they named it, oh, we got more money. Why did he do that? Well, it's interesting. He he did it because of a study that I happen to have right here um, that was done by Princeton University called High Income Improves Evaluation of Life but Not Emotional Well-Being. And he thought... The people at at my organization, because of their low pay, are probably not evaluating their life in a positive way. What if I could contribute it, contribute to something greater? And he has a sense of he has values, and he has a sense of purpose. And you read about his history; he's just a very conscious, socially conscious person, which a lot of that generation are. They're very socially conscious. Um, And so he read this research, and this research gave him a way to improve the evaluation of life by of people in his company. But what it's not going to do, the money, is not going to improve the emotional well-being of his people, which is what is really going to determine their long-term health. And so that's why I'm writing a blog right now to help him, Dan Price, and others understand that his action was beautiful. But we need to understand how to interpret his action if we want the long-term sustainable positive effect that could be created and generated by it. Now, what's going to be the um, – we're, we're going to be running out of time here soon, but what's going to be the, the first um, sort of gap that shows up with him uh, from your perspective? What, is, is that people is, will think that they're going to be happy. Yeah, people are going to think that they're going to be, uh, have a greater sense of well-being because they're now making more money, and then they're still going to have all the same life issues and the problems. And, the, and, and then so there's going to be – there is going to be a, a time period of kind of that – short-term high before they realize that money wasn't the answer. They're, they're going to appreciate the money. They deserve the money. Oh, sure. yeah. But until they right. understand right. how to put that in perspective, they're not going to appreciate the long-term sustainable results of that. Right, right. Uh, I really, really appreciate you being with us today. Um, what's, um, I know you've worked with uh, our colleague Ken Blanchard, so uh, hmm. uh, excluding his books perhaps, What's the one book that changed your life? I I can just say this categorically is Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Oh sure. Oh Victor's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah and and sure. so yeah. he he is the perfect example that he he was he conceptually understand through his own life experience understood that there was something different um 
that that was being satisfied, he, he did name autonomy, um, and he actually did name relatedness and competence in some regards. But the science since Viktor Frankl's experience has borne out that what he experienced and what he understands, and I would encourage people to go on YouTube, watch, if you haven't read Man's Search for Meaning, just look up Viktor Frankl and listen to what he says because he was a man that lived what the science is now sharing with us. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And can yeah. I just offer yeah, something really, really read... quickly? Um, I just want to mention right. that on my website, um, at com, there's a free motivational um, outlook assessment that people can take and they get immediate results. And it's just really okay. fun, and it gives people, they start to get a sense of what we mean by motivational outlooks. Absolutely. Perfect. Great. All right, so you, you, you gave us your website, so you, people can find you there. They can find your book on Amazon, obviously. Um, any other particular places you want them to go search for your book? Um, uh, no, Amazon's great. Well, I mean, Barnes & Nobles, it's in Barnes & Nobles. There's a lot of airport bookstores, so whenever you know you see a good bookstore, okay. the book should be there. But um, I'd also encourage people to go to the Ken Blanchard website because, as I said, motivation is a skill, and we do have a training uh, solution called Optimal Motivation that has been vetted worldwide. I've, I've done it in China and India and all over the world, and it's changing people's lives and the way leaders lead. So it's pretty powerful. So I, I would love it very if people good. would check into that. Is that, blatant? No, Was that a blatant sales thing? Obviously, but, but you're, you're motivated, so there you go. Um, well, I'm always Susan, motivated, but I'm so awfully motivated. <laughs> I believe in it. I'm passionate about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Really appreciate it. I'm you sure know what? I appreciate what you all do. Thank you so you much. Thank all you. Right, take care. Uh, bye bye, Mike. Uh, next week we jump back into our leadership and the common good theme, but I want to um, urge our listeners, folks, what's going on in your neighborhood that's changing everything for those involved? Who are the leaders that are making things happen? Let's get them on the show. Just send a note to me and share your story. This is Robert Thompson from Mike Mead. Thanks for listening to Thought Grenades for Monday, April 20, 2015. Thanks for listening to Thought Grenades with Robert Thompson and Mike Meese. Catch us live every Monday at 10 a.m. Pacific on Blog Talk Radio or listen anytime you wish on iTunes.